Well, hello, and welcome to the Fisher Poetry Podcast, a showcase of prose, poetry, and song written and performed by those in the commercial fishing community, mostly. I'm your host, Brad. Thanks for joining us today. Today's episode is from the 2023 Fisher Poetry Gathering in Astoria, Oregon. You'll be hearing from Fisher poet Toby Sullivan of Kodiak, Alaska, with introduction by MC Dan Kaiser. This set was recorded at the Liberty Theater on Saturday, February 25th, 2023. So, without further ado, here's the show. Next on deck, because we are on the next string, will be Toby Sullivan from Kodiak, Alaska. He's been commercial fishing since 1975. So here you go. You're at the rail, Toby. Good evening. It's nice to be here. Thanks for coming out. So I'm going to three, read three shorter pieces tonight. And uh, I think they're self-explanatory. First one's called Bobby Stamp. Bobby Stamp was the other deckhand on the first boat I ever fished on, on the Gladys R. This was back in 1975. Bobby had a direct gaze and was slightly bow-legged. He was just starting to go gray then. He told me he was from Chiniga, up in Prince William Sound, but the tidal wave in 64 had messed up the village pretty bad, and they had all had to leave. That's how I ended up down here in Kodiak, he said. We left the harbor on a Sunday, sunny April morning and went down the east side of the island, the mountains white against a blue sky. We anchored up in a quiet bay as evening fell around us. The light was going and it was hard to see. What's that? Off to the right, I pointed. A house, said Bobby. Kaguyak Village. Before the tidal wave, people lived there, like Chatinga. He lit a cigarette and looked at me. You know, young man, what you see isn't off to the right. It's off to the starboard. You're on a boat. Try to remember that. One afternoon, I was taking pictures as we passed by Two-Headed Island. There was an old wreck there up on the beach. From a mile off, the white hull was like a seashell on the black sand. They caught on fire a few years ago, said Bobby. Some of them didn't make it. When I wondered if maybe we could go ashore sometime to look over the wreck, Bobby took a drag on a cigarette. Young man, maybe you should put that camera away and go chop some bait. If you're lucky, this is as close as you ever get to a wreck like that. In later years, I used to see Bobby sometimes sitting by the door of the old city market, waiting for his ride back down to the senior center. His hair was white. He had a cane. Diabetes had messed up his legs. They wouldn't let him smoke anymore. He had taken to carving delicately beautiful two-foot versions of the Aleutic kayaks his grandfather had once built for real in Chiniga. He sold the models for folding money. Once, when my daughter was small, we ran into Bobby at the market. She stood at the thing, she stared at the thing in his old brown hands. That's a badarky, he said. He pronounced it badarky. That's how my people used to get around in the old days. My daughter is 18 now, 
Last spring, we found ourselves in the Looking Both Ways Aludic Cultural Exhibit at the Smithsonian in Washington. On a wall in 12-inch letters was this, end quote. I remember the ladies sitting in the houses, laughing and sewing. You know, everybody helped everybody, unquote. Bobby Stamp. A little further on, there were pictures of old Chaniga and Kaduguyak before the tidal wave. And I could hear Bobby's voice in the soft light of an evening many, many years ago. Young man, you need to pay more attention. You could learn something if you just open your eyes. Thank you. Um, I fished for many years in the Bering Sea, but I've also fished for a long time in Uganic Bay on Kodiak Island, uh, set net fishing, and this piece is about that. Late at night on our fish camp on Kodiak in Uganic Bay, after the weekly salmon fishing period had closed, after we had delivered our fish to the cannery tender, we would sit in the cabin listening to chatter on the VHF radio, Channel 7, drinking beer out of the cooler in the creek. From our cabin at East Point, we would watch the lights of the Shearwater as she moved around the bay, stopping at each of the other fish camps along the far shoreline to get their fish. And we would listen to the skipper on board calling ahead on the radio to let the other camps know he was headed their way. On closure nights, the tender would make its rounds and then disappear around Broken Point with its load of fish for the run down the coast to the cannery at Larson Bay. The glow of its deck lights hanging in the mist around the corner of the point for a few minutes after the boat had made the turn. And as the long twilights of June and July dwindled into the truly dark nights of mid-August, we would look out across the three miles of water at the lights of the cabins on the other side of the bay. The lanterns of our neighbors, the only human light in the world beyond the kitchen where we sat. Tiny yellow points of light a mile or two apart at the foot of the mountains on Uganic Island, the white spray of stars above the Black Ridge. There were about a dozen other camps scattered around within VHF radio range on both sides of the bay. And though communication between us was mostly limited to the business of fishing during the fishing periods, on closure nights, a certain camaraderie came out on the airwaves. People would chat, and banter back and forth across the water in the dark. And as the transmission keys were held down on the mics, you could hear the sounds of the other people in the cabins talking behind the speakers, children laughing up past their bedtimes, the clink of silverware and dishes as late meals were eaten, the sound of bottles touching to the rims of glasses. One night in the summer of 1996, after the initial burst of the radio conversations had died down, I sat with my two crew members nibbling cold pieces of the salmon we had barbecued for dinner, sipping our beers, listening to the low surf on the rising tide moving up the beach at the bottom of the stairs in front of the cabin. There were longer and longer silences between exchanges on the radio, but we could see the lights of the cabins across the bay, and there was an almost palpable presence of wide awake people listening to the silence of their radios they, as they sat, warm and dry, in their cabins, the glow of Coleman lanterns and candles lighting the glasses on their tables. 
I had gotten in the habit of reading poetry out of a couple collections to my children that summer, besides the usual bedtime stories, Robert Frost, William Butler Yeats, William Blake, and Robert Service. They loved the cadences of the rhythmic language and even learned to chant, tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night, as I read aloud from a book. I had read them a bedtime story and a couple of poems earlier in the evening and then packed them off to their bunks. But now, after midnight with the radio gone mostly silent, one of my crewmen, a high school kid, brought down the Robert Service off the shelf and began reading The Cremation of Sam McGee to a buddy of his at a fish camp out at Miner's Point. He read it, holding the mic in one hand and the book in the other, and when he was done, there were immediate calls from the other camps in the bay to read another one. We took turns reading for a couple hours after that. Robert Frost, The Road Not Taken, Yeats's Host of the Air, and even a long passage from Michael Herr's Dispatches about the look and feel of battle at night in Vietnam in 1968. We would pause for long minutes between readings, and at first there were only calls for more, but after a while when we stopped, other voices in other cabins came out of the darkness, reading poems from books they had pulled down off their own fish camp bookshelves. People began reading amazing things, poems, passages from novels, lyrics from songs right off the backs of the cassette tape boxes, even the manifesto-like statement of quality from a case of beer. <laughs> Finally, we went to bed. But as I lay in my bunk in the back of the cabin, there were still voices out there in the kitchen where the radio was, reading snatches of things, and I fell asleep listening to the voices, the pauses between readings getting longer and longer, the readings slowly fading in frequency over a period of hours, like the diminishing glimpses of a ship as it moves further and further out into the sea and disappears between the waves and over the horizon. Thank you. So I've read this one before, but people seem to like it, so I'll read it again. It's called The Things You Need. You need Goodyear extra tough boots, two pairs for when the ankles get holes from being folded down to dry. Two sets of orange Grundens rain gear, jacket, and pants. Dutch Harbor brand gear is okay too. They even have pockets now. But the hoods on the Heli Hansen jackets are too small for some guys, and the dark green color is invisible at night in the water if you go over, if anything happens. Nothing from West Marine will last one good day. <laughs> If it looks like something you'd wear in a sailboat, forget about it. <laughs> Even on the reinforced Grundens, the knees will go out in a few weeks, climbing into the pots, climbing up on the stack, hefting 100-pound coils of line into the pot with your knee. The crabs, the crabs will grab the cuffs. The sleeves will catch on the corners of pots. The picking hook will tear the sleeve to the shoulder, and it will happen a minute after you walk out on deck in a brand new jacket. The smell of orange plastic fresh in the wind, the $70 price tag still flapping on the collar as you tear it off in disgust. 
You need neoprene wristers, like the sleeves of a diver's dry suit, at least two pairs, so there's always a warm ones in the dryer, a couple dozen cotton glove liners, a case of green neoprene gloves, $100 a dozen, with the long cuffs that go up under the sleeves of your rain jacket so the water runs down your arm and off your fingers. You need them because the dryer will make them brittle, because thousands of spiny, opie crab shells will scuff the rubber off the fingertips, because a hundred miles of line will come out of the crab block every day and abrade the notch between your right thumb and index finger like a fast river cutting through soft rock. Because at the end of the trip, half the lefts will still be new in the drawer under your bunk and all the rights will be trashed in a box in the entryway. <laughs> and you will pick through them every morning looking for the ones with the smallest holes. You need a wool stocking hat, though it will get wet and freeze and weigh so much your neck will hurt. A military tank liner with a little snap that snaps under your chin for your, cat, your ears in February, working up against the ice pack in the Pribiloffs. A neoprene face mask for when it gets really cold when the ice fog starts moving across the water in those spooky little wisps. An insulated Mustang suit for working on top of the crab pot stack in the wind, for chopping ice off the rails, for setting the anchor at two in the morning behind St. Paul when it's blowing 50. Make sure it's the kind with the inflatable collar that has a mouth tube to blow it up that will keep your head out of the water if anything happens. And a CO2 cartridge that goes off automatically hopefully, if you are unconscious, if anything happens. You need lots of hats, build caps with the logos of bars and canneries and equipment companies. Sometimes hats are lucky, but you will not keep them. They will blow off in the wind when you look up at Coast Guard C-130s going over, get ground up in the bait chopper by your friends for a joke, dropped between the dock and the boat while drunk, taken by girlfriends for souvenirs, lost. You need a pair of uptown jeans for the elbow room, a set of Carhartts for doing gear work in town, thick polypropylene socks, all of one pattern, so you know whose are whose when they come out of the dryer, felt boot liners, those little blue booty inserts, sweatpants and hooded sweatshirts, enough to always have a dry set to put on, lots of cotton t-shirts for changing out of between strings of gear when you soak them through with your sweat. Underwear. You need a knowledge of cookery, the ability to learn how to change the oil on a Caterpillar 3298, an appreciation for dawn, a respect for night, books about anything, money, your toothbrush, extra strength Tylenol, knee pads, a Walkman, Jimi Hendrix for good days and Hank Williams for bad ones. <laughs> Paper for letters, stamps to mail them, a calling card for the phone on the dock in Akitan. The numbers of people who will answer that phone late at night, who will listen to you breathe when you forget what you wanted to say, who will know without being told. Pictures of those people, a calendar, the memory of dry land, summer, trees and the smell of your woman, a piece of her clothing in case you forget, your plans for the future and a plane ticket home.
Thank you. That was Fisher poet Toby Sullivan, recorded at the Liberty Theater in Astoria, Oregon, on Saturday, February 25th, 2023. Well, that's it. This one's in the tote. The Fisher Poetry Podcast is written and produced by Brad Wartman. The theme music for this episode is courtesy of Mark Allen Lovewell and Molly Canole. If you'd like to appear on or have comments about the show, please send an email to the Fisher Poetry Archive at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to haul the latest episodes into your net. The Fisher Poetry Podcast is available via our podcast host, Spotify, as well as Apple, Google, and Amazon. You can listen to our other podcast episodes, watch our YouTube videos, and join our community by going to thefisherpoetryarchive.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you on the next one. Come all young sailormen, listen to me. I'll sing you a song of the fish in the sea. Blow your winds westerly, westerly blow. We're bound to the southern, so steady she goes. 